morning we're going to continue our study in the book of Philippians and we're going to be starting chapter 4 this morning. We're going to be looking at the first nine verses and I entitled the Bible study, Why Worry? <laughs> what do we have to worry about? Well, <laughs> we could be tempted to, to think that anyone who would, who would say that statement, why worry? They're not paying attention because we are living in perhaps the most uncertain times in a generation pandemic economic chaos following the pandemic political divisions the likes of which this country has not seen since the civil war <coughs> unrest throughout the nation uh, a nationwide crime wave non-existent southern border war in eastern europe that at any time could flare up into something much wider and much more severe and those are just the worldwide problems what about the things going on in your own life? Like, like maybe you have a difficult boss. Maybe you have a difficult group of co co-workers. Uh, how about marital issues that we all experience from time to time? How about the challenges of raising your children? How about looming health issues that you may be going through? And many of our number are right now. And so we'd ask ourselves, how could anybody in this day and age expect to live worry-free. Well, <laughs> the Apostle Paul knew something about hardship, didn't he? His life was devoted to planting churches and nurturing those churches. And, and the very church that he's addressing in this letter had going on in the midst of it a quarrel between two women. And you know how in, in a small church, if two people are really engaged in, in a quarrel or in a, in a conflict, it, it bleeds out. It, it's just like that war in Europe. They're, all the countries around it and all the nations in the world are watching it, are kibitzing on it, and, and being affected by it. And, and this is going on in the midst of that, in that church. And then he's got, he's got some professing Christians who are yet coming in behind him, trying to corrupt the work that he was doing in teaching the gospel of grace and teaching people that they needed to follow law in addition to grace in order to be saved. And so the very work that he dedicated his life to is being hindered by others. And then there's that small matter of actually being in prison while he's writing the letter. Probably chained to a Roman soldier or something. Poor guy, that poor Roman soldier, man. 24-7 gospel, it's like K-Love, you know? <laughs> chained to his wrist. Shipwrecks, imprisonments, beatings the kind of life that most people would shirk from and would never follow on a bet. And yet Paul is not real. We can't get from his, any of his letters a sense that he's in a state of profound worry, and a crushing, debilitating worry. No, he seems to be a wellspring of encouragement. And, and what he's telling us in this passage, which we're going to see, is you know, really the power of prayer. We always talk about the power of prayer. And we talk about it so much that sometimes we can kind of overlook the fact that we really mean it, that it really does have power. It has power because it can protect your heart, which is the seat of your feelings, and your mind, which is the seat of your thoughts. Because worry emanates from wrong thinking, which leads to wrong feelings, which leads to wrong actions, which gives us plenty to worry about. And so what Paul gives us in this passage, he gives us three defense mechanisms to combat worry. The first, of course, is prayer. The second is 
bringing our thoughts into captivity of Christ. And we're going to see how profoundly important that is. And then finally, as a defense mechanism, we can follow a godly example. We're fortunate to have some of those in our life real time, but we also have Paul's example right here. Okay, so if you would please stand with me. We're going to go ahead and read the whole passage this morning, the first nine verses of chapter four of Philippians. And here's what it says. Therefore, my beloved and long for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore Euodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. And the God of peace will be with you. Heavenly Father God, we pray that the God of peace, the Lord God Almighty, the Son Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit who lives in us, that God would dwell richly in us. Lord, that you would join us in this room through the power of your Spirit. Lord, that you would speak to us through these words that Paul wrote so many years ago through the guiding hand of the Holy Spirit. Father, as your servant this morning, to bring this truth to these people, I pray, Father, that I would be an empty vessel to be filled only by you and that nothing would proceed forth from my lips and my heart but that which you want these beautiful people to hear this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, you can see here the great love that Paul has for these people. He refers to them as his beloved his long-for brethren. He, he counts them as his joy and his crown. Um, they are really fruit of his ministry, right? And so he sees them as people that are, that are very important to him and very much loved. And the concern that he has for them is their testimony. Just as we should be concerned, I'm concerned for my testimony, but I'm also concerned for yours because if we're gonna be purveyors of truth, if we're going to be salt and light, then our testimony matters. How we carry ourselves among other people, not in a phony way, in a genuine way. How we carry ourselves speaks volumes to people who observe our lives concerning the power of God in our lives. And worry is the enemy of a godly testimony. It is one of many enemies, but it is an enemy. Worry, if we consider what it is it's that uneasy feeling that anxiety that discomfort that comes from concern over the disconnect between what we expect to happen in a given situation or what we want to happen and the outcome we believe is likely to happen i think that was probably a good part of the conflict between you Adia, 
and Syntyche, these two women that Paul is specifically calling out in the letter. They probably had conflicting views on how something should be done. Maybe they had an argument over the color of the carpet in the sanctuary. Uh, maybe may, may, maybe uh, they had an argument over something petty and it has grown into something bigger over the period of time. And Paul is concerned because that kind of conflict in the midst of the church is a distraction and then it becomes a thorn a discomfort that grows into a wound. And so Paul is concerned about this because obviously this kind of thing is a bad testimony. It's a bad witness. And when we are consumed with worry over anything, fear or anxiety, that's overweening. And by the way, there's a fine line between healthy concern about something. If you're concerned about something, you tend to address it and fix it. Versus worry that consumes you and incapacitates you. Paul was concerned for his church here in Philippi, wasn't he? But he didn't cross the line into a debilitating worry or panic. I mean, think about it. You know, a lot of people, they have these beautiful, friendly dogs. And then all of a sudden, someone comes into their house, and in the way in which they present themselves to the dog, all of a sudden the dog nips at them. Well, dogs will bite when they're anxious and fearful. People do too. When they're anxious and fearful, they bite. The effects of worry on us are really profound. Uh, Proverbs 12.25 says, Anxiety in the heart of man causes depression, but a good word makes it glad. If you think about what is killing people today, worry would have to be near the top of the list, wouldn't it? Particularly during the years of of COVID-19 and the years immediately following. Depression went way up. Anxiety went way up. Suicides went way up in almost every age group, but especially in young people. It has, it has a profound effect on our psyche. Depression, confusion, swings of emotion, irrationality. All of a sudden, we're having all these crazy shootings. Where do you think that comes from? It comes from fear and hopelessness and worry. Brings upon us poor judgment. The effects go beyond that, though, because they have a physical effect on our bodies. Heart palpitations, elevated blood pressure, shortness of breath, all of these kind of things consume people. You get an overdose of adrenaline that starts to wear your body down. It's like your motor is running at a high RPM and you're not going anywhere. And so you'd wonder, wow, for all this worry, uh, is there any payback? Is there anything good? I mean, some people, you know, when you tell them, look, man, 90% of, of what you're worrying about never happens. They said, see, worry works. But it, it, it doesn't work. It really doesn't work. Um, l- look what Paul is urging them to do in verses 4 and 5. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. It's really hard to rejoice in the Lord always. It's really hard to, to show gentleness to the world when you're anxious, when you're worried, when you're, when you're consumed with fear. Jesus himself spoke very, very directly to this tendency that we have to worry. If you would just flip back in your Bible to Matthew chapter 6. In my Bible, this passage between verses 25 and 30 is subtitled, Do Not Worry. This was Jesus' advice, his command on his disciples. Jesus said, therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life. 
what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? I can attest to the fact that doesn't work. So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, and neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today is, and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So there are a number of things that stand out here in what Jesus teaches us. The first and foremost thing he teaches is that worry misses the point of the Christian life. The Christian life is all about serving, magnifying, and glorifying Jesus Christ. When we show excessive worry, what we're saying is we don't trust our king. We don't trust our sovereign. We don't trust the one to whom we've turned our life over to. You know, some of us are unwilling to get in a car when certain people are behind the wheel. Uh, It's just one of those things where, you know, uh, you can get in the car with all kinds of confidence, but you're not at the wheel. This other person is at the wheel. And so you get into a car, you get on an airplane. You You get on an airplane with total trust in somebody you have never met, may never meet. You go under the knife in an operation. They put the thing over your face. They tell you to count backwards from 10 and you don't even get to open your mouth and you're gone. And now a whole bunch of strangers are going to cut you open. We have faith in that, maybe. And for those of us that don't, they usually give you, you know, some kind of uh, (laughs) drug to calm you down before they put you under. But my point is this. We've turned our lives over to the God of heaven and earth, the creator of us. And so when we are consumed with excessive worry, what we're saying is, I don't trust that guy behind the wheel. I don't trust that guy holding the knife. And that miss, Jesus is saying here, you, you, you missed the point. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Yeah, it's about serving Jesus Christ. Jesus also tells us in verse 27 that it's pointless. Which of you can, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? There's a whole lot of other things that we tend to worry about that we have absolutely zero control over. Again, those things for which we have no control, we look back to our sovereign because he has total control. So when we worry, we kind of we are sending the message that he's not in total control or maybe he has bad intent towards us. The third thing and most important thing that we learn here in verses 28 through 30 is that worrying is the opposite of trusting God. And he gives some examples there of how well God takes care of things that have no capacity for worry. Birds can't worry. Flowers don't worry. Mountains, the sea, the general creation all around us has no capacity to worry. And yet look at how splendidly God arrays and provides for all of that. And so this is why Peter wrote in 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your cares upon him for he cares for you. 
And verse 5 of our text, now back in our text, when it says, let your gentleness be known to all men, the Lord is at hand, the Lord is by your side, the Lord lives in you. If we truly trust, if we truly put our lives in the hands of God, come what may, come what may, then our lives can be gentle, can be peaceful, and we can, we can send a message to people that, look, the answers you're searching for, they're found in God and God alone. Now, let's look at these defense mechanisms that he provides in verses 6 and 7. He speaks to the principal defense mechanism that we have, and that is prayer. Be anxious for nothing, he says in verse 6. And by the way, be anxious for nothing. Boy, when you're consumed with uh, something that's in your life that's a, a mountain of worry... And someone says something like that to you? It takes a Holy Spirit to hold that hand back from slapping them, doesn't it? (laughs) Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. These, These are the kind of verses that stand out as ones that we should memorize. I mean, there's a whole lot of verses in the Bible. You can't memorize them all. I mean, I have a photographic memory, but I've been out of film for a long time. <laughs> but there are a few that I can grasp. There are a few that I can grasp and, and hold. I mean, one that I, I memorized long ago is Romans eight twenty eight. We know that all things work together for the good for those that love the Lord and are called according to his spirit. Called according to his purpose. Sorry. See, running out of film. Uh, you know, there are certain ones that are really headline verses. These, I believe, go into that, that category because we have to keep reminding ourselves of some of these truths. They're easy to forget. The enemy is working against them all the time. So looking at what he says there, he says prayer, supplication, thanksgiving. Prayer is the superset of all these different other kinds of prayers that he is calling uh, us to. Uh, Prayer in in its simplest form is a private conversation with God, isn't it? Uh, It's you and him. And uh, as we get near to God, uh, we, we start to get an appreciation for who he is. This is why true prayer should, but almost by nature, begins with adoration. When you get before a holy God, calm yourself down, remove distractions. I mean, not to say that you can't pray in the midst of things because we're told to pray without ceasing, to pray always. And so we should. But when you truly want that time in prayer, and I urge you to, to make time for that kind of prayer, to really just get alone with you and God. As you start to do that, you start to really get an appreciation for who he is. An effusive praise, a doxology should almost just roll off of your lips. I love the prayer that that Daniel prays in the pivotal ninth chapter of Daniel's prophecy. This is a chapter in which the angel Gabriel is about to disclose to Daniel all of what the future of his nation will be like. And indeed, the very future of all of humanity. But the interesting thing is that the Gabriel showed up to Daniel when Daniel was well into a long prayer. And he starts out that prayer in verse 4 of that chapter. He starts out this way. Oh, Lord, great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him 
and with those who keep his commandments. You know, it's funny because as he started that prayer and then he gets into the prayer and he's, he's really praying uh, intercession for his nation and confession for their sins and unfaithfulness. When Gabriel shows up, he lets Daniel know that, that Daniel's prayers were answered when he started. Daniel, Gabriel was on the way to bring him the message when Daniel had started the prayer. God saw this man's heart. God wanted to bless this man with knowledge that no one heretofore had had because Daniel was a faithful servant who adored his God and he prayed at that time. And so, you know, our prayer should start with adoration. You've probably seen the, the acronym ACTS, A-C-T-S, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Notice what comes first, adoration. Now, one of the other ways in which he urges us to pray there in verse 6 is supplication. Supplication's the part of prayer that most people don't forget because it's the part where we ask God for something. When you come before the Lord and you pray that the Lord might grant something in your life or perhaps may, might take something out of your life, an illness or, or something like that, a threat, that's supplication. And you might say, well, how, how, could, how could asking God for something that we don't have calm our worries i don't get that and this is the way the lord showed it to me as a father of three boys this was something i experienced in my time growing up there is something about asking another person for something that causes you first to filter the reasonableness of the request this is why for example and this is what i learned as a father that if my boys were going to ask for something they would weigh in their mind the likelihood of it the reasonableness of it. And if it seemed unreasonable to them, they would ask their mother. <laughs> and if there was anything, if there was any nefarious reason or purpose, they wouldn't ask me because I would sniff it out. And, you know, I have a default switch that says, no, now convince me otherwise. Well, it kind of works that way when we approach God. I mean, can you really go before the Lord and say, Lord, please grant me the Corvette? I'll glorify and magnify you. No, you won't. You'll be glorifying and magnifying you. I mean, you, you filter as you pray. Now, there are very legitimate things we pray for. And when we bring those to the Lord in prayer, what we are doing is we are bringing that request to the one who sees well over the horizon. We don't. We see the immediate need. We see the immediate want. We see the immediate danger. And we don't see beyond that that there might be an even greater value in going through the trial and experiencing the deprivation of not having that thing. We don't see that. And this is why we have to understand, we can never forget, that the purpose of prayer is not to change God's mind about anything. The purpose of prayer is to change our heart about everything. God can do that for us if we come before him. You might say, yeah, but God has never really given me a reason why he didn't grant me what I wanted. And my answer to that would be, I think he did, but you may not have been listening past no. Because very often when God refuses to grant what we've asked for, he gives us peace about not having it. That's been my experience. I know it's been many of yours as well. 
And then he refers to thanksgiving. When we come before the Lord and thank him for things that he has done, what we are doing is we are bringing into sharp focus the character of God. God is a good God, is what we are likely to say. God is good all the time. That's a truth. What that does when we give thanks for that which we've received is it gives us confidence. It removes anxiety and worry about what might happen in the future. It gives us a sense that God saw my need and he provided. I believe he would do it again. And if he doesn't, he has another reason why. I mean, think about, again, going back to the the book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were commanded that when certain music played, it's probably ACDC or something like that, (laughs) they were to worship the colossus of uh, image of Nebuchadnezzar. And anybody who would not do that on, on the queue would be tossed into the fiery furnace. And by the way, Nebuchadnezzar loved Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were part of his court. He had great favor and, and, and love for them. But it, the word got out that they refused to worship that image. And he called them before him. And he said, guys, get with the program. Don't you understand what is likely to happen to you if you fail to worship at the appointed time? Now, I want you to go away and I want you to think about this really carefully because your lives are on the live line here. And they said, oh, great king, live forever. We have no need to go away and think about this because we serve a God who can deliver us from that fiery furnace. But even if he doesn't, we will never worship another God. And you know the story. Nebuchadnezzar has the furnace fired up seven times hotter than it was supposed to be. The, men, the very men who threw these three guys into the furnace were burned to death just by the heat coming out of this furnace. So they prayed for deliverance, but they weren't delivered from. But then Nebuchadnezzar goes down to see what's going on in the furnace. He doesn't three, see three charred bodies. He sees four men in the midst of the furnace. And one was like the Son of God. And he calls these men to come out. And they come out. They don't even have the smell of smoke on them. Their hair wasn't even singed. They had a healthy glow. (laughs) And what had happened was God chose not to deliver them from the flames, but to deliver them through the flames. Can you imagine the witness and testimony of those three men? We don't get any more. They don't appear again in Scripture. But just think about that. If you were one of them, God didn't give you what you asked for, but you said, God, I know you're a good God. I've given you thanks for everything in my life. And I know you you can grant this from me, but even if you don't, I will not stop worshiping you. Boom, he takes you through the trial. You're on the other side. You are a, a piece of forged hard steel for the Lord. And, that, and that's what he did with these men. Now, verse 7 tells us that this, this idea of, of prayer is, is like medicine for our heart, our feelings, and for our minds, our thoughts. It all establishes by the fact that we receive this peace of God which surpasses understanding. Why does it surpass understanding? 
Because very often, when we bring things to the Lord in prayer, we are in an impossible situation. I've been praying for our country right now. I've been praying a lot for our country, for our leaders. It seems like we're in an impossible situation. It seems like we have a knack as a country of doing the very thing that is guaranteed not to solve the problem we're praying about, but in fact to exacerbate it or make it worse. We're going to spend more money because we have inflation. We're going to print more money because we have inflation. Inflation means the money supply is inflated. There's too much money for too few goods. So the prices go up. So we're going to print more and spend more. I pray about that. But I have a peace that passes understanding because I don't get it. I really don't. But the Lord gets it. See, we can put our faith and trust in him because he gets it. He understands it. He's seen it. He's, He's been there. He's ordained the solution since before the problem even existed. So I can, I, I can have peace of God because most importantly, I have peace with God. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. When we come to faith, we have peace with God. As I've mentioned before in here, the number one problem that every human being is born into is they are at enmity with God. They are born with a sin nature that separates them from God. They are, as the Bible terms it, at enmity with God. It means we're enemies of God. And the whole of our lives on earth can be made the most successful that it could possibly be if only we will, we will humble ourselves, confess our sins, and come to faith in Christ. And then we have peace with God. And when we have peace with God, we can trust him because he saved us from eternal damnation. And so now he confers upon us through prayer the peace of God. Now, we come to this, uh, to this next thing, which is... I call it being in our right mind as a means of combating worry. Look at verse 8. Finally, brethren and sisters, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. What the Lord is imploring us to do here is to guard our hearts and our minds, to place our thoughts captive to Christ. This sounds like mind control, sounds like indoctrination, and it is. And people who who would say that in in a negative way, oh, you're being indoctrinated, it's mind control, say yes, it is. By God Almighty, Because the absence of mind control by God Almighty is mind control by the world, which is evil. It's of the devil. It's of the devil. The devil wants to destroy us. You take away the D, you've got evil. That's what he's all about. You take away the E, you've got vile, and that's who he is. You follow the devil, you take away the V, you've got ill. He makes you ill. You take away the I, you got L, and L is where you're going if you follow the devil. So, putting up, this is what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, 
casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Doesn't that sound a lot like Ephesians chapter 6? Same deal. Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Now, this takes some discipline. It takes some Christian maturity because our minds want to go all over the place, don't they? And now we live in a day of, of uh, electronic devices, internet-connected devices, so you can be looking at virtually, almost virtually, anything you want to have in front of you, you can have with a couple of swipes and clicks and, you know, there it is. And so we are the most distracted generation in the history of the world. We have more things competing for our attention. This is why attention spans have gone from people being able to read encyclopedias at one sitting to now we've got like, you know, an attention span that rivals the, the half-life of a fruit fly. I mean, in 10 or 15 seconds, we're on to the next thing. And if we don't like that, we're on to the next thing and on to the next thing. And, and so it takes some discipline to take our thoughts and place them in captivity to Christ. And then what he says, where do we do? Well, is there anything noble? There's so many ignoble things in our world today. It seems the world celebrates crudeness and incivility. And we get dragged into that sort of thing. Some of the TV shows, these so-called reality shows that make fools of people. And they're happy to be made fools of because people are looking at them. And all advertisement and all publicity is good. Whether you're bad or good, you're good. Whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, so few things these days come across as pure, lovely, of good report, true. I mean, truth, truth is something that really can calm our hearts from worry. Many of the things that we worry about are not even true. Or there are things we can't do anything about. Do you ever think about this? That today is the tomorrow that we worried about yesterday. Right? Today is that dreaded future that we worried about yesterday. But here we are. Everything's okay. Hmm. Is there a pattern here? <laughs> All these things. Um, and, and, and purity. I mean, right now... Much like in first century Corinth, there was just no shortage in Corinth of vile, perverse things. And, and when you read first Corinthians, you really do get a sense that there's a, there's a little bit of a smackdown there going on because Paul is seeing what's going on in that church and he sees the influences coming through the front door of the church. Man living with his father's wife and you're all happy about it. Look how inclusive we are. Look how forgiving and loving we are. Paul's saying, no, you're not. No, you're not. And so for us to focus on purity in this time, discipline, put every thought captive to Christ. Now, the last thing that he addresses here in verse 9 is following a godly example. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. You know, I think when we, a great indication of how our lives go has a lot to do with how close to the center of God's will we are. I don't know if any of you have ever heard um, this saying. Actually, it was a saying, or it was a quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson. By the way, I don't recommend him as, a, as an example, but he did say something profound. He said, so a thought 
reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. And there's a lot to that 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 Paul is speaking to here because from our thoughts flow feelings. If you have lustful thoughts, you'll have lustful feelings. From our feelings flow actions. If you're consumed with lustful thoughts and feelings, you might actually put those into motion and actualize them. And from our actions flows the kind of life that we live. And sadly, much of what people worry about is directly related to the way in which they're leading their life. If you are leading your life with wrong thoughts, which provoke wrong feelings, which push you into wrong actions, which defines your life and your character, you got a lot to worry about. And these are the kind of things, you know, people pray, help me through this, help me through this, Lord. And God probably wants to say, you didn't come to me when you were considering this. Why do you come to me now? You didn't come to seek advice for guidance. Now you want remediation of a problem you created by rejecting me. And this is the way we have to, you know, we have to think about this. Isaiah 32, 17 says this, the work of righteousness will be peace. And the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. The great litmus test for whether or not you're living in the, wor- in the will of God is the measure of peace in your life. You can have all kinds of terrible things going on, health problems, money problems, problems in our nation. And yet you can be at perfect peace if you are in the place that God desires for your life. I see many people in that. I see people in this room. They have peace in their life. They've got serious challenges facing them circumstantially. But they have peace in their life because they've given it over to God. And they, and, and they, and they follow him. Paul is not bragging here in verse 9, by the way. He's, he's not saying, look, you know, I, I'm all that. But he's saying, look, I have considered these things carefully. I have written these things down because the Holy Spirit guided me to write them down. And I have patterned my life after the things that I've heard from God. If you need something to look at, to pattern, watch what I'm doing because this is why I do it and how I do it. And I urge all of us, myself, top of the list, for the same thing. I can be prone to worry like the next person. I've gotten good at it over the years. I think the reason why, in God's perfect timing, this message is today It's because I've been consumed with some worry. And so I leave you with that. I leave you with this idea that prayer, turning our thoughts captive to Christ, following a godly example, whether it's somebody that you can point to in your own life, or whether it's simply the Apostle Paul, and most especially Jesus, just keeping that pattern in your thoughts can go a long way to calming your heart and keeping your trust in the Savior and not being consumed in worry. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for these precious words of, of advice, Lord, and for what you, have, what you have done in our lives up to this point. And as we view our lives and as we give thanks for the things, the many things, Lord, that you have done for us up to this point, let us rest in the knowledge we have of your character as a good, gracious, and merciful God. Let us trust you each and every day. Let us hold every thought captive to Christ. 
Lord, we, we pray that you would just enlarge in our minds. You would just consume every corner of our hearts. That our thoughts and feelings would only be for you. And that the peace that we experience in our lives, although it may surpass our understanding, comes directly from living in the center of your will, Lord. I pray that for myself. I pray that for my brothers and sisters. We pray it in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Enjoy the rainy day.